Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we come before a really difficult passage to understand, but yet so rich and profound in meaning. And we pray that we really need your Holy Spirit to guide us, not just to understand it, but to apply it in all its measure. Because truly the words that are spoken today are the words of great warning to make sure we receive eternal salvation and eternal life. And we pray for all these things in Jesus Christ. Amen. It is said that those who do not learn from history are bound to repeat it. And how true that is, because if we do not learn from the past, then we're destined to make the same mistakes over and over and over again. So I was reading somewhere that one of the great advances of mankind was the invention of writing. Because with the invention of writing, actually, you can actually learn in the space of a day or two or a week the mistakes of a lifetime of someone else. So let's say I wanted to make a light bulb. Instead of making the same mistakes all over again, I can read about all the mistakes that Thomas Edison made and I don't have to make the same mistakes again. And I guess that's why if you go to the bookshops, self-help books are so popular. Because the self-help books basically are trying to distill for you in a very short time all the mistakes that other people have made so that you don't make the same mistakes yourself. So I always remember when uh, you know my, my children play rugby, whenever I, I go and listen to the coach, I guess, instruct my kids to play rugby, uh, they, they seem to always tell them this thing. Insanity is doing the same thing the same way over and over again and expecting the, a different result. And what they basically mean is if you keep making the same mistake over and over again, you will always get the same result. And I guess what the rugby coach is trying to say is don't make the same mistakes. And I think that that's the lesson for us as we come to today's passage. And the stakes are a lot higher than just a rugby game. It's actually uh, the stakes of our eternal salvation and eternal life. Now today we are looking at chapter 3 and we begin at verse 7. <coughs> and verse 7 says, So, so, or if you are using ESV, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Now, the, the beginning of verse uh, 7 starts with the word so, or therefore, and it really demands that we go back to the previous verse, because nobody starts a sentence with the word so, or therefore, without looking back towards what was said before. And really in verse 6, uh, this is the passage that uh, was said in verse 6, this is the key to what that verse 7 is referring to. It says in verse 6, But that Christ was faithful as a son over God's house, we are his house, if we hold on to our confidence and the hope of which we boast. And basically what that was saying was, this was like a summary statement of everything that we had read earlier on in chapter 3, where, okay, the next slide, uh, it said that Jesus died on the cross for us, and he is now our great high priest in heaven. Right? So because Jesus went to the cross as a perfect atonement for our sins, because he resurrected and exalted and is now in heaven as our perfect high priest, we are able to be brought into God's household, into God's community, God's family, God's people. But only if we hold on to Jesus because he is our perfect sacrifice, and our perfect high priest. That's why it says that Jesus Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house. So therefore, in verse 6, right, there was a big if there, isn't it? You are 
God's house, we are God's house, if, if we hold on to our confidence and the hope of which we boast. Now, that means that salvation, as it is seen by the writer of the book of Hebrews and God speaking through him, is not something automatic, it's not something guaranteed, it's not a right in itself, but there's this condition that we must always hold on to our confidence and assurance, our hope. Now, exactly what does that mean? It means that the person that was referred to in the book of Hebrews, ourselves, as we read it, must be confident in what Jesus has done for us on the cross. We must have great confidence as Jesus, as our sacrificial uh, atoning sacrifice, as well as Jesus and his work as high priest. And we must put our hope, not in this world, but our hope in heaven, in glory, in being united with God in heaven. And that is where it now brings us to verse 7 of chapter 3. Because in chapter 7, sorry, chapter 3 is verse 7 onwards, it looks to history and the mistakes of history to show why this big if is so relevant to us today. Why it's such a big warning to us. Why we must learn from the mistakes of history. So in verse 7, because we must hold on to Jesus and our confidence and our hope, right? it says, So as the Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. During the time of the testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Now, I know that uh, for some of you who have come here today, you may not be that familiar with the, the, the Old Testament stories, you may not be that familiar with the history of Israel. But this uh, quote here comes from Psalm 95 and it's actually looking backwards towards a very crucial time in God's history. And what had happened was God had saved and brought His people, the Israelites, out of Egypt through a series of great miracles and He brought them through the desert towards the promised land to have rest in Canaan. But as the people had left Egypt and on their way to going to the promised land, they rebelled against God they tested God and they turned against God and God swore that they would not enter the promised land. Only the next generation would enter the promised land. So Numbers chapter 14, right, Numbers chapter 14 summarizes what happened during that fateful trip in the desert. Right, when they had left Egypt and were on their way to the promised land, to uh, the promised land of Israel. And uh, it says there in verse 1, chapter 14. That night, all the people of the community raised their voices <coughs> and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled, not, not just one or two, right? Not uh, the vocal minority on uh, Twitter or something. But all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this desert, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose the leader and go back to Egypt. Next slide, verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me despite of all the miraculous signs I've performed among them? 
Nevertheless, as surely as I live, and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one has treated me with contempt will see it. Now what happened here, if they look back in history, they see that actually God's people who were saved by God on the way to the promised land, on the way to rest, made the mistake, made a big mistake, a big mistake of testing God, disobeying God. Now these people did the opposite of what chapter 3 verse 6 told uh, the Hebrew Christians to do, isn't it? They no longer put their confidence in God's promises or God's power. Right? They, they, they saw the miracles that God had done. They witnessed the great salvation that God had done by bringing them all out of slavery, out of Egypt. But instead of putting their confidence in God, what did they do? They treated God with contempt. They said, no, God cannot bring us. He cannot bring us to the final leg, into the promised land. And instead of putting their hope in God and the promised land and looking forward to the promised land, they looked backwards towards Egypt. They wanted to go back to Egypt and where they came from. And they tested and tried God over and over again. And what the, the writer of Hebrews is saying is, this example from history, the mistakes that were made, and the end result actually show that if we, we as Christians, just as the Hebrew Christians in those days, if we, or the Hebrew Christians in those days, fail to continue to put confidence in God, fail to put our hope in God and the future, then the end result will be the same. Remember what my rugby, not my rugby coach, my kid's rugby coach says, if you keep doing the same mistakes and the same things over and over again, you will achieve the same result. And that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. He's saying that if we follow the same example as those Israelites who fail to hold on to the confidence of God and the hope of the future of God, then we will get the same result. We will fall and we will die, we will be rejected by God. The danger is not a theoretical danger, it's not a hypothetical danger, but it's a real danger if we do not hold on to Jesus. Now I know that Many Christians today do not believe that there is this real danger of actually falling away from your faith, of losing salvation, of actually losing Jesus Christ and all the benefits that come from it. I remember uh, I was listening to someone who was telling me that a new creation church, they believe in this thing called the prison of grace, where once you become a Christian, you're locked in the prison of grace and no matter what you do, you cannot escape from that prison. And as a result, you are always in God's grace and always saved. I remember talking to someone at another church's church camp who said that once you pray the sinner's prayer, you will always be saved. Uh, once you say the sinner's prayer, that is the guarantee of salvation for you. But again, it is, it is opposite of what the writer of Hebrews chapter 3 is saying. For the writer of Hebrews chapter 3 looks back at God's people in the past in Israel and says, look, here are people who were saved by God, they received the promises of God, they've seen the power of God, yet they failed to believe and put their confidence and assurance in God and therefore they never made it to the promised land. 
In the same way, we can be the same as well. If we begin and we are saved, but yet we do not hold on our confidence in Jesus and the hope of what He does, then the result will be the same. Learn from history. See the mistakes that they make and don't make the same mistakes. Now in verse 12 onwards, we see how, uh, as we've been looking at the book of Hebrews, he, the, the writer always begins with a teaching section followed by application section. Uh, a theology section followed by exhortation. And in verse 12 to 19, he, he applies the lessons of history to the listener. And he says in verse 12, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold, to our, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were, those who, heard, who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Now what is the application for us as we look back at history and we look back at the mistakes of the Israelites? Well, we are to pay great attention to it. We are not to read it intellectually. We are to take it to heart. Because it says right at the very beginning of verse 12, see to it. Now I think that the, the NIV translation is too weak. It's too watered down. It basically has the meaning of watch out. Beware. Pay great attention. Because the mistakes of history are relevant to our Christian walk today. And it's relevant to, if you look here in verse 12, to every single person. Look at what it says there. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you, right, none of you. That means that the writer of Hebrews is not addressing them corporately, but individually, each of us, in every row here, in every seat here, needs to watch out for the mistakes that they made to see that we don't have a sinful and unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Now basically, if you look at verse 12 to verse 19, right? All of it, all of the descriptions which are described from verse 12 to 19 all center around the hardening of the heart. Right? The hardening of the heart. Because that's the main theme of uh, this section. Do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. And there are so many various ways in which we harden our hearts as is described in chapter 3, verse 6 onwards. Our, our hearts are hardened when we are sinful and unbelieving of God. When our hearts turn away from God. When we hear and rebel. When we sin and disobey. And our hearts are full of unbelief. Now, as you, as you see this list, I guess the question for us is, are our hearts like that? Is your heart like this? 
uh, as an individual, right? Because he's looking at us individually. As we sit here as individuals before God, are our hearts hardened against God? Do we hear things that the Bible tells us to do, but rebel against it? Do we have hearts of unbelief in terms of the power of God to save us? Do we sin against God in a way which is persistent and which is unrepentant, which is unwilling to change? Well, the Bible says very clearly here, isn't it? That we must watch out. We must truly watch out. Because if that is something which characterizes our heart today, then the mistakes that Israel made in the desert are the same mistakes that we are making, that you are making, that I am making. And we will not enter our rest. We will not enter heaven. See, I think that as we read this passage, we must realize that each of us individually have a responsibility to make sure that in our personal relationship with God, our hearts are always sensitive and obedient and listening and responsive to everything that God tells us. As we grow in our personal walk of Jesus and God, we must really listen to Him and love Him. See, it's not just about uh, going to church. It's not just about going to Bible study. It's not just about singing songs. But, but what really, really matters is our heart, isn't it? Is our heart hardened against God? Or is it truly responsive to God and listening to God and obeying God? and making sure we're walking with God. Now, the passage goes on, in verse 13, to say, But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Now, the character of sin, how sin works, is through deception. Uh, it, is, it tricks you, it seduces you into doing things which ultimately will lead you to being hardened in your heart against God. When we think back to the very first instance of sin, right? if you think of the Garden of Eden, right? remember how the serpent uh, said, what did the serpent say? Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And as a result, uh, Eve doubted God uh, she, she doubted God's goodness towards her and that was the spiral towards being hardened in the heart against God. Now I think that that's the same way that sin works for us, isn't it? Because in our heart, we don't wake up one morning and say, okay, I'm going to be hardened against God today. No, we wake up and we make small compromises which lead us slowly and further and inexorably uh, far away from God. So, how is sin deceiving you? Is sin deceiving you and are you in that process of being hardened in your heart? I've met many Christians and I'm always surprised how sometimes as Christians I see it in their lives, I see it in the things that they say to me, how we can indulge ourselves by saying, okay, for a season of life, for a time, I'm going to slacken in my Christian walk. Right? So, for the next year or so, I'm going to decide to maybe focus on something else, which I think is more important. Maybe my work, some relationship, 
some hobby, or maybe I will just not be so diligent in reading my, my Bible or praying to God. And somehow in their mind, they have this idea that, well, okay, I can slacken off my Christian walk for a little while, a month, a year, two years, and then I can always come back to God later on. But that's a, a lie of Satan. That is the deception of sin. To, to feel that, okay, I can loosen my grip on Jesus, relax my hold on Jesus, and one day I can come back and be strong in my faith again. Because isn't that what's, what was happening here? Sin was deceiving the people. and They were doubting God. And once the, the cracks form and you start doubting God and not relying on God so much, then it just gets worse and worse and worse. I'm always amazed as well how people are willing to take risks with their faith. Because the, this passage says here, beware, isn't it? Be really careful because when you start sliding down this slope of hardening your heart, the end result is so tragic, so tragic for people. But yeah, I see people, and it's very sad for me, who deliberately choose to indulge themselves. And I keep using this word indulge, right? Because that's the best way of describing They indulge themselves in small sins. So you justify sinning in a small way. It can be anything. Lying, uh, last looking at things on the internet, uh, greed, ambition, envy, pride, all these small little things that somehow we, we, we justify to ourselves and we say it's okay, it's no problem. But then over time, these small sins become bigger and bigger and bigger. And then we are hardened our heart against God. Well, Hebrews says very clearly that we must not do that. None of you, none of us is individually, he's talking to you sitting here individually, none of you individually must make sure that you have a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. So we should examine ourselves right now and ask ourselves, have we begun that process of turning away from God? from taking liberties, from being, be, being deceived by sin and sin's deceitfulness. Now verse 13 is very interesting and uh, it's very different from the way the world sees uh, how the Christian walk should be, isn't it? Because in verse 12 it says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you as individuals has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But in verse 13 it says, But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called, Today. Now that's really interesting because usually you sort of say, well, make sure that you don't have a sinful, unbelieving heart, but read the Bible more regularly or pray more regularly. But it doesn't say that. If you look very carefully, it says encourage one another daily. That means that our Christian walk is our personal responsibility. But we also have a corporate responsibility to each other. The Christian walk is not a solo race but it's a team race. And we have a responsibility for one another, sometimes even to carry one another. And it says here that we must encourage one another daily. And that's what church is about. Church is about each of us having a role to encourage one another to hold on to Jesus, to have confidence in Jesus, and to make sure our hope is in eternal life. Now, I remember seeing this um, cartoon I, I photocopied it, uh, I scanned it yesterday. And uh, basically, 
some people have the idea that, okay, it's only the pastor that encourages everybody, that teaches everybody. But look at what it says in verse 13. It doesn't say, see to it that you don't have an unbelieving or sinful heart, but let the pastor encourage you every day. No, it says, but you encourage one another daily. Now, I want to ask you a very serious question. When is the last time you have encouraged someone in Christ? I think very seriously about this question. When is the last time you have encouraged someone in Christ? When is the last time that you helped someone grow in their confidence in Jesus Christ? When is the last time you've helped someone look forward to the hope of glory? When is the last time you have done something like that? Or even prayed for someone? Now, if you can't remember then something is very, very wrong. Because it says there, encourage one another daily. Right? Encourage one another daily. It doesn't just say weekly, or maybe once a year, or during Easter or Christmas, but daily. It is to be a consistent feature of our church life, of a life of a Christian, to encourage other people to persevere in Christ. See, the role of church is not to come for entertainment, or for self-fulfillment, or as a consumer. But we come here to encourage one another to grow and persevere in our faith. Now, I want you to look around the people around you now. I'm not going to get you to stand out or something, but just look around at the brothers and sisters around you. And ask yourself seriously in your heart, does it matter to you that person's faith? Does it really matter to you if that person falls? Does it really matter to you if that person gets to heaven? Because according to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, it should, isn't it? We should feel a responsibility to each other to encourage one another. So I think that as a practical exercise, uh, I want you to think of next slide. Three people. Okay, there's nobody in our congregation. I just picked it out, okay? I just want you to think of three people that, that, that you want to really personally encourage in their Christian world. Just three people. Just think of three names. Write three names down in your, in, in your outline. Three names in your, in your tablet. Three names in your phone or whatever. But three people who you want to encourage in their Christian world to make sure that they hold on their faith and look forward to the hope of eternal life. Okay, just, just take a moment. Who are the three people that you want to encourage in Christian world? Okay, verse 14. It says, We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold on, sorry, we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. Now again, this is a, the big if, right? You will come to share in Christ all the benefits of Jesus Christ if you hold on to the conviction that you had from the very beginning. Now that means that uh, as we come to church, the purpose of us coming to church is to help us to hold on to our belief in Jesus Christ. And I like, uh, if you look, actually, the whole of 12 to 14 all links together. And it says there in verse 13, isn't it? Encourage one another daily as long as it's called today. And you are to keep 
doing this as long as it's called today until the very end when Jesus comes again. You see, it never ends this encouraging of one another because there will always be today, a today until Jesus comes and then the today's end. Today speaks of a present reality. So that means that our role to keep encouraging one another is to help each other hold on to our convictions till Jesus comes. That is the whole aim of us coming together. Now I remember reading an article by this old pastor on the internet, old meaning he was a lot older than me, I think, looking from, judging from his picture. And in his long experience, he said that he had seen many people who choose churches very badly, belong to churches very badly, and leave churches very badly. And he said, why do people choose churches badly? He said, well, in his lifetime, he said, people choose churches for various reasons, because of convenience. They want a church that's close to their house. Or maybe they want a church which is comfortable, people in their own social circle. I guess he was talking about uh, in America, where you, know, you can go white church, black church, whatever. Or, or even, like he was saying, churches of different circles of society, rich church, poor church, medium, uh, middle class church. Or they may choose churches for worldly reasons, you know, because of the excitement, the building, the buzz. But he said they never asked the most important question, which is, will this church help me hold on to my convictions to the very end? Because that is the whole purpose of church, isn't it? Uh, it's not about convenience, it's not about social circle, it's not about uh, consumerism. It is about, does this church help me hold on to my convictions to the very end? And then he went on to say that actually people belong to churches very badly. Because he says that many people today see churches as consumers, as very individualistic. I drop in out to church and I drop out of church. I choose church like people choose gymnasiums. You know, you choose a gym and after your, your, uh, your contract or whatever expires, you move to another gym. Or like a community centre, you know, you just go there for the activities. He says that church is more like a family, a community where we invest time and energy in one another to help one another grow in our convictions until Jesus comes. So I remember uh, a few months ago, there was a guy that came to church here. And I remember talking to him outside. And this uh, young man, nice young man, he was a very, uh, you know, winsome person. he came come back from Australia and uh, he became a Christian in Australia. And he'd been back to Singapore for two years. And I asked him whether he'd settled down in church. And he said no, he'd been going to five different churches in the last two years. Just, you know, going, dropping in, dropping out, dropping in, dropping out. And I asked him, was he accountable to anybody? And he said no. I said, did anybody pray for you? He said no. Does he have a deep relationship with any other Christians here? He has said no. And does, is he encouraged by anybody? And obviously the answer is no. And no wonder, no wonder, he said to me that his Christian walk was not doing well. Because it is a fulfillment of what Hebrews chapter 3 is saying, isn't it? Here is a person who treats church like he is treating, uh, you know, going to restaurants, like a consumer. So today I feel like going to Subway, I go to Subway, tomorrow I go to McDonald's, and after I go to Pizza Hut, whatever. It's, that's the way he's treating church. He doesn't treat church as a family, as a people, who are coming together to help one another grow in Christ. And lastly, this writer was saying that people leave churches badly. 
And, uh, and it's true, he was saying, you know, sometimes people leave church and they, they leave church and they say goodbye after the end of service and you never see them again or they just never come again. And he says that that is not encouraging people to grow in their faith because it stumbles people, right? People have invested time and energy in your, in your life over the years. They prayed for you, they've opened up their house, they have uh, welcomed you into their Bible study groups. And when people leave that way, it actually discourages people in their faith. But the whole premise of church is to encourage people in their faith. And that's why he was saying that our understanding of church is very poor these days. Anyway, so as we move along, we're going to move along to chapter 4, and you think, oh, it's very long, right? But actually, it's looking at the same passage, looking at the same psalm. Now, chapter 3, the big idea that was taken from the psalm was the hardening of hearts. Okay, he said, don't harden your hearts like those Israelites. But the idea of chapter 4 is all about rest. It's all about the idea of rest. That, that's the main theme that is picked up from Israel's history. So he says in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said, so I declared an oath, in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. So here the whole idea is about rest. Okay, now I'm going to sort of help you understand it visually because I know that it's very deep, it's very dense. So, okay, look out here in this thing. Okay, my sons have been helping me in my PowerPoint skills. So, okay. So, you think about it this way. Around 1446 BC, uh, that's what we estimate, right? God brought the people out of Egypt. You see the, the what do you call those things? Uh, pyramids, okay? And they're making their way to the promised land. That's what uh, the promised land Canaan, Israel is, okay? And what this passage is saying is, okay, God took his people out of Egypt and was bringing them to the promised land. But, next slide, they did not enter the promised land. Why? If you look here, because they did not share the faith of those who believe. They heard, it says there in verse 2, but it was of no value. They heard, but did not obey. They did not believe. But the good thing is, the good thing is, next slide, that this picture of God bringing the people out of Egypt into the promised land was only a shadow of what was to come. It was only pointing forward to what was the real rest. And the real rest, next slide, was God saving his people from the slavery of sin and judgment and bringing them into the eternal heavenly rest. Right? So, the next slide. So this is the reality, the real eternal rest. Whereas that picture of Canaan was just a shadow of the rest, of the real rest to come. So what is the lesson for us then? In verse 8, it says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter the rest so that no one will perish by following the example of disobedience. So here we see that the lesson we are to learn is that we are to learn from the Israelites that 
they never entered that rest because they were disobedient and they hardened their hearts. But we are not to be like them. We are not to make that mistake. We are to beware of their mistakes. But we are to listen and to combine our listening with faith and obedience. Now, this is the next slide that visually, I think, hopefully displays it, right? So we are not to make the same mistake and have that big stop sign in front of us, but we are to continue on in our faith, in our obedience, in our conviction, in our confidence, in our hope. And when Jesus comes again, we'll enter that Sabbath rest. So as we come to the end of uh, the sermon, I really want you to reflect on the reality of history. Because in history, God's people were on a journey as well, right? The journey from slavery in Egypt to the promised land, the promised rest. But they hardened their heart and they never entered into that rest. Let us not make the same mistake. Let us learn from the mistake. Because we too are on a journey to the Sabbath rest. But we have to keep holding on to Jesus. Holding on to our confidence. Holding on to the hope of eternal life. Now pastor that I was listening to on a sermon uh, gave this really powerful illustration which really stuck with me and I hope that it helps you as well to understand the, the principles that should be applied here. He said that, uh, imagine, okay, this is you, right? Okay. It took me an hour to pull this together, okay? So, this is, this is you, alright? You can ask my wife, she was complaining last time I was doing it. This is you, you're drowning in the ocean, okay? And you need to be saved. You really need to be saved. Okay, you can't save yourself, right? Okay, so then, helicopter comes. See how... Animation, well, animation now, okay, that's good. Okay, helicopter comes, and the helicopter comes at the next flight. Okay, then it, it, it drops you a rope. Okay, next one. Okay, then it takes you out. Okay, next slide. Now, at this point, you are safe from the water, right? You're, 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 you're in a position of safety, but you still need to hold on to the rope. Right? You can't afford to let go of the rope, because when you let go of the rope, you're no longer saved. You're actually going to fall back into the danger that you came from. Okay, next slide. So you've got to keep holding on. Next slide. Until you're finally on dry ground, right? Okay? But it's a very similar situation to us, isn't it? Because, next slide, here we are, we are, we are, we are sort of in danger, we're drowning, but we're not drowning because we're in the ocean, but because we're drowning in, in, in our sin and we're facing judgment. And what we need is not a helicopter. Okay, what we need is, we need a saviour. We need Jesus, as we read in chapter 3, verse 6. The one who sacrificed himself as a perfect atonement for our sin, as a high priest, now intercedes for us. So Jesus now saves us. Next slide. From our sin and judgment. Okay, next slide. Okay, next one. Okay, but the thing is, we cannot afford to let go of Jesus at this stage. Right? We must keep holding on to Jesus. Because we... It is still today, isn't it? It's not the very end. Jesus has not come yet to bring in the Sabbath rest. And until he does, it remains today and we must keep holding on to him. Okay, next slide. Okay. But I think that this passage actually tells us that there is more to it. Because it's not just me holding on to Jesus Christ. Next slide. There are many other people, right, holding on to Jesus too. And that's who we are, isn't it? And as we hold on to Jesus, all of us, we have to keep encouraging one, one another, saying, okay, don't let go. Don't let go of Jesus. Let's keep holding on. Let's hold on to our convictions. Let's hold on to our confidence. Let's hold on to the hope that we have. So I hope that as we look at the mistakes of history, 
we will learn from them. And we will see that truly we have to really beware and to watch out that we do not fall away, that we do not harden our hearts. But at the same time, we have a responsibility to each and every person here too to make sure that they don't harden their hearts and fall away from Jesus. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, help us to see how real the danger of sin's deceitfulness is. Help us to beware of the hardening of our own hearts, where we may be drifting away from you, we may be indulging ourselves with slackening our grip on Jesus, we may be indulging ourselves to allow sin to come into our lives in small ways and ignoring it and uh, indulging ourselves. We pray that we may see the end result as a terrible tragedy, that if we should lose our Sabbath rest in heaven, there will be no, uh, no sympathy for us, there will be nothing that can, that can bring it back. So we pray that each and every one of us will truly take our personal walk with Christ seriously, to hold on to Him, to hold on to our confidence and our hope. At the same time, dear Father, we pray that we may really encourage one another as long as it's called today, to see each and every one of us here in church uh, and to see each other as a brother and sister in Christ, as family, as a community, and to really encourage one another and to help one another in our faith. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.